Restrictions may apply. Plans and costs for coverage may vary. Call Protect My Car for details. In these hard economic times, you've got to do whatever you can to save money. One of our biggest expenses can be our cars, especially when unexpected repair bills hit. Not anymore. If you do own a car, truck, or SUV made from $19.99 or higher, you could stop paying for car repairs. That's right. You might not have to pay a penny to have it repaired. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if you qualify. You must have an automobile made from $19.99 or higher, and all repairs. Repairs for your engine, transmission, and much more can become a thing of the past. Dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone today and get your car protected before your next repair bill hits. That's right. Total protection for your car and no more repair bills. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now to see if your car qualifies. That's star star 1149. Never pay for car repairs again. Just dial star star 1149 on your mobile phone now. Dial star star 1149. Darkmyths.org and Neopolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. What exactly is a doppelganger? It was derived from German meaning double goer or double walker and refers to what they thought was a supernatural phenomenon back then, which is someone who looks like you, talks like you, walks like you, acts like you. Could be your twin, but is not. It also describes a phenomenon of having a double that is not related to you and if you go on twinstrangers.net you can try to find your own doppelganger in the sea of 7 billion people that inhabit this planet and to think that there's not somebody else out there who looks just like you who acts just like you who has those same color eyes as you same shape nose mouth ears hair it's just naive. They exist. They are out there. And uh, if you want to go check that out, it's very cool. They're, they have a lot of stuff over there um, of doppelgangers that have found each other. And I'll put up some photos and a link over on TLGpodcast.com for you to check it out. That's the phenomenon we're going to be talking about here today concerning the assassination. Lee Harvey Oswald was my guest. Uh, before we get into it, though, I want to encourage everyone to go check out Pete's Paranormal Chronicles. It's a podcast by Corey Mambocaret, and it is just the funniest thing ever. And 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 finally, Pete 
on the show has gotten a budget. So the quality of the show has gone way up. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> the newest episode, the Dartmouth Ferry, will leave you in stitches. So everybody, please check out the Dartmouth Ferry, the newest episode from Pete's Paranormal Chronicles. You, you're just going to die laughing, I swear. It's, it's the funniest thing ever. It's a comedy horror um, mockumentary that you will much enjoy. Here's a small trailer, a short trailer from Pete's Paranormal Chronicles about some stuff you're going to check out. I'm going to put up a link to that as well over at the website and also to darkmyth.org podcast collective where you're going to find a ton more podcasts. If you like this one, if you like Pete's Paranormal Chronicles, you're going to find a ton of other shows over there that you're going to dig too. So check that out. Give our Facebook page a like. And make sure you share, share, share. So we're going to hear a little bit from Pete, and then we're going to get right into the interview. Stay tuned. From the imagination comes a story of a paranormal investigator and a nationwide conspiracy that will make your head spin. It's Pete's Paranormal Chronicles, a horror mockumentary series, now presented in supersonic sound. You want action? PPC will deliver action. Drama. I'm sorry, buddy boy, but that's a life, you know. Sometimes people die, you hear me? Anthropomorphic alligator jazz musicians. Come on, man, the dust is in the You shouldn't be smoking crystal meth down here. Suspense. According to Bill, Jonathan had plans to meet with Sarah at her place later that night to watch a movie, and he was secretly expecting some hot stuff to go down. Sadly, he never made it to Sarah's place, and nothing hot went down at all. And horror. Dark Myths Podcast Collective presents Pete's Paranormal Chronicles, a comedy horror show. Turn the volume up, turn the lights down. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Lone Gummin Podcast. This is episode 117. And today, I have an author joining me. His name is George Schwimmer, Ph.D. He's the author of Doppelganger, The Legend of Lee Harvey Oswald. And you can find that on Amazon. George, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. Glad to be here. Good, good. Now, your book is uh, very interesting. You were kind enough to send me a copy of it to peruse before we had, got a chance to talk here. Um, if you could, uh, just, just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and... Uh, what made you want to write this book? Well, I'm more or less uh, retired, and uh, I write various and sundry things, books, plays, uh, screenplays. And uh, in 2009, I began writing a screenplay about a, a potential assassination of a presidential candidate. And, of course, uh, that brought uh, JFK and Lee Harvey Oswald to mind. And I uh, hadn't read anything about, uh, uh, didn't want to read about it, you know, for a long time. I wanted to put it behind me. And I hadn't read anything for about 30 years. 
So I thought, well, I better read something about the, and see what, what is the latest uh, on the question of the assassination. <coughs> so I got two or three books and I found that uh, some very confusing and contradictory material and uh, some of it was kind of uh, disturbing. And so I kept reading and uh, eventually uh, some of the items in some of these books uh, got my attention and I went online and started Googling and I found uh, uh, quite an extensive uh, uh, assassination uh, research community and I was finding things that uh, I wasn't reading in books and uh, which was very interesting and of course I had to go and check everything out because you can't really trust uh, what you find online these days but I found that uh, uh, you know, most of most of the stuff online is uh, legitimate and uh, verifiable. And uh, what I found uh, most uh, confusing were accounts of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, which uh, put him in different places in odd times and uh, uh, created situations where people had to speculate what he was doing. There was no information, whatever about where he was at a certain time or a certain place, and it was just, it was a big mess. And uh, the best I can uh, describe uh, what was happening during my research is, it was like, you know, somebody had taken half a dozen jigsaw puzzles, taken them apart, put them in one box, and shaken it all up. So not only are you trying to find out, uh, you know, one puzzle, you're trying to go and make sense out of what you think is one puzzle when it's six puzzles. And uh, this continued for uh, quite a while uh, until uh, I finally uh, discovered uh, by reading uh, John Armstrong's, uh, John Armstrong's uh, book, uh, uh, Harvey and Lee, that there were two uh, Lee Harvey Oswalds. And as I got into the material, and he did a very good job documenting it, so I uh, I uh, pretty much trust, uh, you know, virtually everything that he has in there because he, he has the documents on a CD in the back of the book. And uh, so it was very clear to me after a while that uh, there were two Lee Harvey Oswalds, and that, of course, uh, uh, started to separate a couple of the puzzles. And so I was able, when I was doing the research, was when I'd run across a fact about so-called Lee Harvey Oswald, I'd have to look at it and say, okay, now, is this Lee or is this Harvey? And in most most cases, uh, it wasn't uh, real hard to uh, uh, find out uh, which was which. Uh, for example, uh, uh, the uh, some of uh, Harvey's uh, buddies uh, said uh, um, he was uh, talking in Russian and uh, subscribing to Russian newspapers and reading Russian books and calling people comrade. This was happening when in 19 uh, let me see 19 uh, beginning of 1959, when uh, Harvey actually was uh, stationed in Southern California. However, people who knew him in Japan say nothing about uh, Lee Harvey Oswald knowing Russian or studying Russian or calling people comrade or anything like that. So it was very obvious after a while when I realized there were two different people to uh, separate which was which. Was which. And uh, also uh, people would describe... Uh, their physical characteristics, the color of their eyes, their height, their weight. Uh, Lee weighed about uh, uh, 30 pounds more than uh, Harvey, 
and uh, he was two inches taller, and there were all kinds of different uh, things uh, about them. Uh, uh, Lee in Japan, if anybody called him Harvey or Harv, he'd fight them. And, uh, of course, Harvey never objected to that. And so it was it was very clear after a while, you know, you start separating it out, and you say, okay, this was Lee and this was Harvey. But when you get even further, when you get up to the last three months uh, before the assassination, all of a sudden now there are, you know, at least a dozen, maybe two dozen Lee Harvey Oswalds all over the landscape. Uh, in New Orleans, in Austin, in Dallas, in Fort Worth, in Mexico City, uh, you name it. And they're all over the place. And I thought, this is impossible. And uh, then uh, I found, you know, uh, there were um, statements by people who knew where Harvey was at a certain time that he couldn't have been at some of these places. Right. So uh, after a while, it became obvious when I realized that the CIA was running this whole thing, uh, that they had uh, gotten hold of some uh, uh, doubles. And uh, it was one very interesting one, uh, actually. Uh, I think the name, uh, the name of the lady, Sylvia Odio, does that sound right? Yes. Uh, in Dallas, who, uh, who uh, he supposedly, Leon Oswald and two other people went to see and uh, the FBI, one of the few times when they actually investigated, discovered who this Leon uh, Harvey was. It was, uh, what was his name, though? Uh, I think the uh, first name was William Seymour. And uh, he had been connected with an uh, organization, organization called Interpan, uh, which uh, was a private organization to help with the... Cuban uh, exiles' uh, plans to invade Cuba. Anyway, they found out who who he really was. So that that one time, uh, the FBI actually did some investigation. But uh, for the most part, uh, we don't really know uh, who these all these people were. But they're all over the landscape, uh, including uh, Mexico City. And uh, in my book, uh, I show, as, as some other people have shown, uh, that the whole Mexico. Uh, city uh, adventure uh, had absolutely nothing to do with uh, uh, Harvey Oswald or, for that matter, even Lee Oswald. Uh, there were at least two and possibly more uh, imposters who were uh, going to or calling the Cuban embassy, uh, 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 Cuban uh, consulate and uh, Soviet embassy. And uh, it's just very obvious, you know, like uh, one phone call to the Soviet embassy, the guy spoke with fluent Spanish, Harvey did not speak Spanish. Uh, another phone call uh, to the embassy was in broken Russian, so bad that the people could hardly recognize that it was Russian. And of course, Harvey spoke absolutely fluent uh, Russian. Um, now, one of, one of the things which uh, I just want to mention, because I found it very interesting, and uh, you may recall that uh, some woman with a foreign accent after the assassination, a day or two after the assassination, called up a distant relative of uh, uh, Officer J.D. Tippett in Connecticut right. and said she knew the real father and uncle of uh, Harvey Oswald, which, of course, not wasn't his real name, and... Uh, that they were active communists, that he was out of work, and that they lived, uh, I think she said it was at uh, 79th uh, 
East 79th Street and uh, near uh, Second or Third uh, Avenue, near Third Avenue. And uh, she mentioned a name, uh, Emil Kardos, K-A-R-D-O-S. And I'm of uh, Hungarian extraction myself. And so that sounded like a Hungarian name to me, except for one thing. The FBI spelled it with an E at the end, Emil. And that is not a Hungarian spelling. That's a French spelling. And when I Googled it, I tried it uh, without the E. And sure enough, I found somebody, and I found them in the 1940, um, what's the word? I can't think of the Directory? Or like phone book? No, no. The uh, it's done every ten years. But what? The census. It's census, right? Yeah. yeah the 1940 census uh, listed an Emil Cardos who had a son, 37 years old, also named Emil, and both of them were unemployed, and they lived three blocks from where this woman said that uh, Harvey's uh, uh, father had lived. And uh, now one of the uh, odd things along with that is that John Pick, Harvey's Lee, Lee, Lee Oswald's oldest brother, married a young woman who was a Hungarian, and they lived about eight blocks from where these people lived. Huh. And so the whole thing, I mean, it's, it's just really, really weird. Uh, and on top of that, uh, I found... Uh, some references that uh, three uh, three uh, language specialists uh, after assassination were given uh, samples of uh, uh, Harvey's uh, voice, and all three of them said this man was not born in the United States. Uh, English was not his original language. And uh, the same thing happened with a letter that uh, uh, Harvey sent to uh, Senator John Tower, and he sent it to a language specialist, I think it was at Yale, and the man said, uh, "This this this was not written by a man whose original language was English." So there's no, uh, you know, it, it, there is this really technical information that uh, whatever or whoever Harvey Oswald was, he was not born in this country. And uh, my feelings about that is that uh, he was brought here sometime. I can't tell exactly when because he, he spoke fairly decent English. And uh, so he didn't have a Hungarian accent, and I know Hungarian accent when I hear it, and he didn't have it. So he he must not have been that old uh, when he was brought here. Uh, and but apparently uh, he spoke fluent uh, Russian, because uh, uh, George uh, Morinshield and some of the other uh, Russian emigres uh, in Dallas uh, said he spoke excellent uh, uh, Russian. And uh, that uh, Harvey would discuss Russian literature with George in Russian. And George said that uh, Harvey uh, preferred to read uh, Russian classics in Russian. Well, you know, you don't learn how to speak like that and read like that uh, in, in a year or two while you're in the Marines. It just can't be done. Right. You know, I, I studied different languages and I, and I flunked most of them because, you know, it's, it's just not easy. You know, you really have to work 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 very hard, and uh, it takes a lot of time. So uh, the, I had you know this whole whole chapter on on uh, on the Hungarian part of it. I'm I'm personally convinced. Uh, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, getting. Uh, I couldn't get the 1950 census because it's not out yet. It won't be out until uh, uh, 2022. So I'm looking forward to 2022 and uh, seeing what other information I can find uh, from the uh, uh, census there. 
So th- oh. these are the kinds of things, you know, that I ran across uh, on, on, on the Internet and uh, followed up on, and uh, some of them were really uh, eye-popping. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you know, when because I think uh, yeah, I've read John Armstrong's book too, and it, you know, he takes it all the way back to I think elementary school. You know, with uh, you know, with there being a Harvey and a Lee, and uh, you know, he tells that story about the FBI, you know, going to uh, Lee Oswald's elementary school the day after the assassination to get his records, um, which which disappeared. Yeah, yeah, and we're never seen again. It's odd. It's very odd to begin with, you know, for them to even do. Yeah, I, I I also want what uh, nobody has uh, brought this up, but I'm I'm convinced uh, I'm convinced that Harvey was a year younger than Lee, uh, because he was so much smaller. You know, I mean, he was uh, uh, as a at, at that time he he only weighed probably about seventy pounds, and uh, Lee weighed uh, about one hundred and fourteen, so that was forty four pounds. And uh, you couldn't be the same age and weigh forty four pounds more unless you were a fat kid, and Lee was not a fat kid. Uh, he was very muscular. Uh, kid, uh, there was one uh, photograph uh, that uh, everybody shows uh, of Lee in uh, grammar school. He's got very thick forearms, uh, very thick neck, and uh, he looked like a pretty strong kid. And uh, uh, one of his uh, classmates in uh, seventh grade uh, uh, described him as, ha- as being the most dominant uh, uh, kid in his class. So physically, he was uh, very uh, tall and strong for his age. And uh, uh, Harvey, compared to him, uh, uh, was called by social workers as very frail. Uh, psychiatrists who saw him said uh, he looked like he was out of a concentration camp. So, I mean, it's very obvious there were two different uh, kids uh, going back. The only thing that is uh, mysterious to me, and uh, I don't really have an answer for or even a real guess for, and that is uh, how did the CIA find Harvey? Now, I know how they found Lee because Lee's first cousin, Marilyn Lorette, was a CIA agent who worked overseas in Japan, for example. And uh, right. my theory about that is that uh, she she suggested Lee uh, to the CIA. And I feel that Robert also was recruited by the Office of Naval Intelligence, uh, just as Lee and Harvey were recruited. And um, John Pick worked for the, uh, I think it was called a PSU. Anyway, that was this, uh, uh, he was with the Coast Guard and they worked on Ellis Island uh, where uh, the immigrants came in. And I started wondering, uh, did that have anything to do with them finding uh, Harvey? Uh, They found him somewhere in uh, 1951. I mean, it's obvious, maybe a little bit earlier, maybe 1950. But uh, exactly how they got their hands on him, I don't know. And uh, the thing that's uh, also a little bit weird about that is how how could a mother uh, let her son go like that, you know? Uh, and uh, I I finally came to the conclusion that by that time uh, his mother must have been dead. And uh, I, I still don't know how they you know they they worked this all out, but I can't imagine a mother giving up her son like that. Right, or he was an orphan, or or. Uh... So, you know, something along those lines. So, anyway, uh, there were these uh, two different uh, uh, Oswalds, and uh, then uh, I got uh, uh, all, all of uh, all of the uh, material that I read about of uh, 
Lee Harvey Oswald in uh, New Orleans, it was it made absolutely no sense. A lot, it was all confused and uh, a real mess, and I couldn't make any sense out of it until I ran across uh, Judith uh, uh, Vary Baker's uh, book uh, Lee and Me, and uh, she described uh, in ve- very great detail. She apparently had a photographic memory, and uh, of uh, her relationship with him and uh, as she told the story uh, uh, everything just uh, started to make sense to me as to what happened in uh, uh, New Orleans so uh, that was uh, you know one of the uh, key points that uh, didn't make a whole lot of difference but it it certainly clarified things a great deal yeah you know I know a lot of people don't don't really buy what she has to say I mean because course there's a problem of well you know I, I i i i was i was literature major and i taught uh, literature and i taught uh english composition and i've written several books and i've written screenplays and i've written plays so i know language and i know how language and ideas fit together and when you look at a book like uh, Vary's book you have to look at the totality of it i'm not sure that every single word that she has in there is accurate uh she apparently did some research which I don't think was accurate, but everything that she said that she personally experienced, I, I have no reason to doubt, uh, because it just fits together. You know, it fits together not just because of uh, what she said, but with the facts which we already knew. And uh, so uh, I, I, I believe, you know, the, uh, everything that I put in my book that uh, she uh, she wrote about uh, New Orleans uh, is correct. And one one of the things that uh really uh answered uh, one question for me was uh is you know if if uh Harvey was in uh Mexico City how did he get there and who was this other guy who went on a bus and had an old passport of uh Lee Harvey Oswald which Harvey had turned in to get a new passport about a month before he was uh, spotted in uh, Mexico City and uh, based on a couple of comments in Barry's book, it uh, finally dawned on me, uh, he had uh, taken these cancer cells uh, down to uh, test on a subject that the CIA wanted to test to see if it would uh, kill a person fast. They wanted to kill Castro with these cancer cells. And so Harvey supposedly was to take these cancer cells, which apparently worked, down to Mexico City, give it to somebody who would take it to Havana, and in Havana, some doctor would inject Castro with the cancer cells. A totally nutty idea, like all the other nutty ideas the CIA had at that time of trying to kill Castro. But anyway, apparently what happened was that uh, Harvey, uh, when he took these cells to the uh, for the person who was to be tested, they had to take it in an air-conditioned car in a special container. And I said, look, there's no way that he could be on a bus with these cancer cells going to Mexico City. So it's obvious to me that he flew from New Orleans. He disappeared for two or three days. Uh, he flew from New Orleans to probably a, a private airstrip in uh, Mexico City uh, to deliver these cancer cells while Lee Oswald or uh, some other imposter uh, took the bus uh, to Mexico City, and then uh, all of this baloney about you know uh, Lee Harvey Oswald contacting the 
Cuban consulate and uh, Russian embassy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just it's sheer nonsense. Yeah. Now, we have, of course, supposed pictures of Lee Oswald in Mexico City, and, and of course, they're they're not him. They don't look anything like him. Um, we got the one Nothing guy. Nothing like him. Yeah, that Absolutely. one guy looks, looks a little Russian a little bit, I guess, and then we have another blonde guy who's yeah. a lot older. Yeah, but the, the the other guy is blonde. He weighs about 125 pounds, and it was about five foot six. And uh, the Russian-looking guy was six foot, uh, had a muscular build. I mean, it's just nonsense. It's sheer nonsense. I don't want to get into all the details, but you know, yeah. if you read uh, what I wrote and read some other books, you'll find it's absolute nonsense. And I remember I, I read somewhere that uh, uh, the uh, House uh, Assassination Committee. When was that, 1978 or something like that? Yeah. Anyway, there was a report there. It was 128 pages long, which has been classified secret ever since, uh, which supposedly the CIA showed conclusively that the, all of that was bogus. So uh, in, in and of itself, if, if we had no other information but what happened in Mexico City, you know this whole thing was baloney right. from beginning to end. Yeah. Now, now, talk to me a little bit about Richard Case Miguel and and what what he had and what he was up to there. Richard uh, Case, uh, how do you pronounce him? Nagel or Nagel? Miguel or Nagel? Nagel. I don't know. I don't know how it's pronounced. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was a very interesting. Uh, it was book. Uh, oh, my mind's going. Uh, I forget the name of the author. But anyway, uh, it's a very long book. I think it's about uh, 700 pages about this man. And he was an intelligence agent who uh, uh, first worked uh, uh, in the service for Army Intelligence, and he was in Japan, actually, about the same time as uh, Lee uh, Oswald was. And then when he got out of the uh, service, uh, he was in a terrible uh, airplane crash, a B-25. He was the only survivor, and... Uh, he, he got pretty ba badly banged up, uh, but uh, he recovered. And uh, he then uh, went to work as a CIA contract agent, and at the same time he was working as a KGB contract agent, uh, which is a pretty good trick. Yeah. And uh, he was, he was uh, told by his Soviet handlers to infiltrate. Uh, they somehow got wind of the Kennedy plot, and he was told to infiltrate the plot in New Orleans. And in the course of that, uh, he met uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, and they got to be, I guess, more or less uh, friends. And uh, he discovered, uh, you know, that uh, they were probably uh, trying to make uh, Oswald a patsy, and he told Russians, and the Russians uh, told them to assassinate Oswald. And uh, Miguel uh, didn't want to do that, and uh, so he was uh, in El Paso one day. I think it was uh, uh, sometime in September. Yeah, sometime uh, late September. And he walked into a bank and fired two shots into a wall near the ceiling, and then went outside and waited in his car for the police to come. And when the police came and he was arrested. Uh, he told the policeman, I'm glad you caught me. I sure did not want to be in Dallas. Right. And uh, so so uh, he wrote, a, he sent a registered letter before he got arrested to uh, J. Edgar Hoover saying there was a plot, describing the plot, 
saying that uh, he knew uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's real name, and that is one of the most provocative things that I've run across. Of course, he never said what his real name was, but he sent this letter to uh, uh, FBI headquarters, and of course, after the FBI uh, said they never received it. And uh, but he had a, he he. Uh, this is an interesting guy. He registered everything he sent to everybody and kept the the uh, receipts for the registered letters. So he had a receipt of the letter that he sent to FBI uh, uh, Chief uh, J. Edgar Hoover. This guy, unfortunately, uh, he died when he was 65, supposedly of a heart attack. The day before, uh, I'm sorry, the day after the House Assassination Committee decided to subpoena him and sent him a letter uh, that they wanted to subpoena him and all of his records. So uh, that heart attack was uh, probably a uh, special uh, poison that the CIA developed, which they told the church committee about, and it's fired from a a high-speed gun, and the person doesn't even know they're being shot with it. And the the poison is uh, frozen and shot into the person, and they die of a supposed heart attack. And if you go through all of the people who died mysteriously after the assassination, you're going to find uh, quite a few people who died of heart attacks. Uh, some some of them at uh, uh, very uh, young ages, like uh, uh, Billy uh, uh, Lovelady. He died at 41. He was a key witness uh, from the Texas School Book Depository. Right. Yeah. Now, um, what was I going to say? Oh, the, the the name of the book is "The Man Who Knew Too Much," I think, by Dick Russell. Uh, yeah, right. And yeah, yeah, Dick Russell, right. Yeah, I always thought it interesting, you know, with about because of course Richard Case Nagel is not his real name either. Um, but I always thought it interesting that you have Nagel, and then Oswald's alias Heidel, you know, the the E L L ending. Yeah. Well, yeah. In in the book, uh, Dick Russell speculates. Uh, Miguel wouldn't uh, confirm it, but he speculates that uh, the last part of Hidel came from uh, Miguel's name, and the first and the first part uh, came from initials of the uh, South Korean Secret Service. And uh, anyway, uh, you know, uh, Dick Russell believes that uh, Nagal made up uh, made up that name, uh, which was Hidel. Uh, uh, that, that was another that was another uh, piece of uh, uh, information that I really uh, developed a little bit in the book, which uh, fascinated me. Are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Hello. Okay, uh, I heard a funny noise there. Okay. Uh, it's uh, very obvious based on uh, both uh, uh, Harvey Oswald's uh, comments about this uh, uh, selective service card of uh, supposedly, uh, uh, what was it, now? James, uh, uh, I can't remember what the first names were, but anyway, the last name, uh, Hidel, and uh, what uh, Nigel said was that the name Hidel was a code name. And that it was used by a number of uh, intelligence people, including himself, and they would use it with a different uh, first name or a different last name or different initials, uh, depending on code purposes. And uh, the only time uh, this name showed up was when uh, Oswald got a post office box uh, in uh, New Orleans where he listed 
the Hidal name. Uh, he did not have it, although the uh, uh, Warren Commission uh, claimed he did. He did not have it on his post office box before he went to New Orleans. And in fact, he did not have it in his possession uh, when he was arrested, and it was not found uh, at the scene of the uh, Tippett murder. The whole thing is just a big fairy tale uh, that was made up by the CIA or the FBI or whoever it was. I guess to uh, connect it was just a code name. That's to all connect it with the rifles. Yeah, yeah, they they try to connect it with the rifle and uh, uh, everything else, but. Uh, he, uh, uh, Oswald said he never used it as an alias, and there was absolutely zero evidence that he ever used it as a uh, uh, alias. Right. Well, so, uh, you know, one one of the things that I discovered was that there was just an enormous number of people who lied. I mean, it was mind-boggling, and uh, it uh, it started it started and. You know, when I first started reading this, uh, the Texas School Book Depository it was just a building to me. You know, it was a building that uh, where you know there was a company that uh, uh, processed books for publishers, and I never thought anything about it. You know, it was just it just happened to be a place that you know uh, was part of, part of the, the uh, shooting, part of the assassination. And the further I got into the investigation, uh, it became obvious to me that the superintendent. Uh, Roy truly was lying, and uh, then later uh, William Shelley uh, was lying, and he was found uh, years later to have been an employee of the CIA, and uh, yeah. uh, Wesley Fraser was lying, yeah. and uh, three three of the people are upstairs were lying. I mean, just the number of people who were lying in the Texas School Book Depository was mind-boggling. And then the second thing that I found out was that it was at least 15 uh, uh, members of the Dallas Police Department from captains uh, down to uh, uh, a beat cop were lying. And uh, everybody uh, who was in the Texas uh, theater was lying. Uh, the two witnesses who were there were lying. The guy who fingered uh, uh, Harvey Oswald, this uh, uh, shoe store manager. He lied like a thief. Uh, I mean, I showed in the book that, uh, that that he was lying. It was ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And uh, the other uh, thing to go along with that are the times. And I know people, you know, lots of people have uh, uh, written about the different times, but uh, the time that the uh, Warren Commission claimed uh, that uh, Officer J.D. Tippett was shot was uh, 116, which is uh, absolutely ridiculous uh, because there's any number of witnesses and uh, uh, other uh, information that shows uh, that he was shot at approximately 106, maximum 108, but most likely 106. Uh, a couple of people even think he might have been shot at 104, but mo most people think, uh, and the evidence seems to show, that uh, he was shot at 106. And uh, one of the witnesses who was not called by the uh, uh, Warren Commission, a lady who lived uh, almost uh, in front of where the shooting took place, uh, was interviewed by uh, someone named, uh, I think his name is uh, Barry Ernest, uh, <clears throat> some years later. And he found her, and he asked her, what time did this happen? And she said, 106. And he said, how do you know? 
and she said because I was watching TV at the time and the uh, the news on the TV at the time and the newscaster turned and looked over his shoulder at the clock behind him and he said it's 106 and she heard shots immediately after 106. So I don't see how you can find any better evidence uh, that the shootings took place at 106. Right. Uh, but the Warren Commission, of, of course, lied and said it was 116. Uh, and at 10 and at 105, Harvey Oswald was standing out in the street next to a, uh, a bus stop. Uh, so it's he, he couldn't have shot Tippett. I mean, there's just no possibility. And uh, the same thing applies to the pistol that he supposedly ordered. And uh, John Armstrong went into great detail, and you can read his book. I went, to, I borrowed some of the details from his book, but he went into even more detail, showing that he could not possibly have ordered either the rifle or the pistol, and that it never happened. And uh, but anyway, uh, uh, Harvey could not have had a pistol uh, in the Texas uh, uh, theater because he was not there when Tippett was shot. And so how would he get the, the pistol if he wasn't there? I mean, I went, I went through from uh, approximately uh, noon until he was uh, uh, arrested in uh, Texas, and I showed minute by minute by minute. Uh, there wasn't a minute missing uh, that uh, he could not have shot uh, uh, Officer Tippett. It was, it was impossible. Yeah, and there's even reports, you know, in the Texas theater of, of another person you know, resembling Lee Oswald, according to at least uh, Butch Burroughs and another guy by the name of Bernard Hare, who owned a hobby store a yeah. couple, couple, a couple of places down from there, who saw somebody being arrested out of the back of the theater, who he thought was Oswald for thirty years, till, until he saw the picture of Oswald being arrested out the front, and you know, which led him to believe, well, then right. what, what did he see? You know, and Butch Burroughs confirmed, right. you know, that maybe five minutes after Oswald was taken out the front, that they they took somebody else out the back. So, right, who looked like uh, who looked like uh, Oswald's brother? He said, right. Well, I'll tell I, I tell you what what I what I found out. What I uh, I put the pieces together, and here's what I found and decided. One of the shooters was Lee Oswald. He was in the southeast corner of the sixth floor of the Texas School Depository. Standing next to him was a spotter. At the southwest corner was another shooter team. Uh, and uh, they, between them, they fired probably three, maybe four shots. Uh, Lee fired one or two shots, immediately handed his rifle to his spotter, started, wa- started walking downstairs. And uh, the next thing, I, and I don't want to go into detail because I want to get, don't want to give everything away in the book. But uh, one of the biggest lies was the uh, story that uh, uh, Officer Marion Baker made up about uh, meeting Oswald in the lunchroom with uh, Roy Truly, and that's all a fairy tale. Didn't exist. Never happened. Right. And uh, Lee came down. Lee came downstairs. He came through the office and he met the lady that everybody knows about. Uh, with a Coke in his hand, and he continued uh, going down the stairs, and he went downstairs, went into a little storage room right next to the uh, downstairs uh, southeast uh, stairs. He apparently went into the storage room to put down his Coke bottle. He was seen by the vice president and some other people uh, uh, coming out of there. 
he ran into Truly and uh, Baker, continued out. As he was going out, he ran into NBC news correspondent, White House correspondent uh, McNeil, who asked him where a phone was. He continued out and was seen uh, uh, getting a handgun from uh, Jack Ruby by four women who were in the Zapruder uh, uh, dress factory and were looking out the, the window at the, the uh, motorcade. He then went and waited to, uh, to 140. At 140, he ran down this little uh, hill to a Nash Rambler, and they went off down toward the Oak Cliff section, and they uh, turned left on uh, what was the uh, I forget the name of the street. Anyway, they turned left on a, on, on a street that went down to 10th Street, and he got out there and uh, somehow either got a, a brown jacket either from the driver or some other place, and then was seen by various witnesses walking down East 10th Street Street uh, toward uh, the theater, and then he met Tippett and killed Tippett. And then he continued up, went into the uh, Texas theater, and then was arrested by the, the people in the balcony. Right. Whereas uh, Harvey, Harvey Oswald was uh, arrested downstairs. So, I mean, uh, I've, I've connected all the dots. It, it's, it's very obvious what happened. Yeah, I mean, cause it seems to me that, that J.D. Tippett was, was hunting for, for Oswald, you know, waiting for him at the Glocko station and to come bebopping by, I think, you know. I, was, I, the, you know, the, the Tippett story is uh, really absolutely fishy. You know, when, when you read, and I put down everything that I could find, when you read what he was doing uh, starting at uh, 1245 on up to the time that he was uh, murdered and uh that he 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 knew he knew Jack Ruby, and there is a witness account of him having a two-hour conversation with Ruby one night with a third man uh, at the Carousel Club, and of course the the uh, Warren Commission uh, kept insisting that uh, Ruby did not know Tippett or Tippett did not know Ruby, and then of course there's the other account that's in a lot of different books where uh, Tippett was in. Uh, this uh, Dobbs House uh, restaurant on uh, uh, a few blocks from where Harvey uh, Harvey's uh, uh, rooming house was in uh, Beckley Street, and uh, he went in there one day, and uh, Lee Oswald was in there one, uh, two days before the assassination, and Tippett was there at the same time, and uh, Lee made a big uh, to-do about, uh, made a lot of noise about uh, the fact that his eggs were cooked too hard. And uh, most people seem to believe that uh, he did that so that uh, uh, Tippett could see what uh, uh, Lee, Har Lee Oswald looked like, which would tell him what uh, Harvey Oswald looked like. But, you know, the, every, everything that uh, we know about Tippett, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I can't believe that he didn't have any, uh, any involvement of any kind. He was, he was involved in some way or other. I don't know what. And as some people speculate, he may have wanted to get out and was killed because he wanted to get out. I don't know. Uh, the, the meeting between Lee Oswald and uh, J.D. Tippett, though, is really peculiar when you read uh, what Lee did and when you read what uh, Tippett did uh, during uh, those uh, few minutes uh, from uh, 1230 to uh, approximately 106. I mean, it's just weird. 
Yeah, I think he I think he rolled up on the wrong Oswald, I think is what happened. And, and uh, you know, I think he knew what was supposed to happen, and uh, he got beaten to the punch there, so to speak. Um, yeah. There, there is one other thing that I don't want to go into detail because uh, I think it's one of the more interesting things in the book, and I want the, you know readers to read it themselves. But when I was reading along, uh, one of the, you know, I didn't pay too much attention to where uh, Harvey Oswald had lived. Uh, and then uh, when he was uh, being interviewed, uh, an FBI agent asked him for all of his previous addresses. And, uh, you know, the phony uh, backyard photo, which also I discuss in there and I show how, how it's uh, totally phony. But anyway, the, the phony backyard photo was involved with this. And uh, they mentioned Neely Street. And I said, Neely Street, Neely Street. Where, where, when did he live on Neely Street? Well, I went back and uh, checked out, you know, my references. And I found out that uh, he had supposedly, the Warren Commission claimed, the FBI claimed that Lee and uh, Marina and uh, his daughter June had lived at uh, 214 Neely Street uh, in the Oak Cliff section of uh, Dallas, and they had lived there for seven weeks. And when I started doing research, I could find no evidence whatsoever that they'd lived there. And the only thing that, that uh, supposedly uh, showed that he lived there was a affidavit from the guy who supposedly owned uh, the uh, property rented where they had rented an apartment. Yeah, they rented it to him, but there is no evidence. There's no evidence whatsoever that it was rented to him. Anyway, I won't go into all that. You know, people can read it in the book. But um, anyway, all of the nasty things that were attributed to him—that he bought the rifle, that he bought the pistol, that he took a shot at General Walker that he supposedly was going to kill uh, Richard Nixon, all took place in the seven-week period of which there's no evidence whatsoever. And if you uh, read my account piece by piece by piece by piece, you will see that this is a total fairy tale, probably made up by David Atlee Phillips, the CIA uh, agent in charge of the assassination. And uh, David Atlee Phillips uh, was the... Uh, top disinformation officer of the CIA at that time. So his job was to make up fairy tales that, uh, you know, would uh, confuse uh, the trail. And if you read uh, everything uh, starting from New Orleans up to the assassination, this is where you get all this absolutely confusing mess going on uh, in trying to figure out, you know, who or what was uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Is because that uh, 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 David Atlee Phillips kept on making up these stories and getting people to act out uh, things that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald supposedly uh, had done. Yeah, no. So, uh, this was one of the huge. This, this was one of the huge disinformation pieces that uh, nobody has put together, and I only stumbled across it uh, when I ran across a small article on the internet uh, written by some guy in Europe. Uh, if you can believe that. Hmm. Uh, there are a lot of people in Europe, and especially in uh, Great Britain, who are really avid uh, uh, researchers. And they have all kinds of stuff on online, and uh, you can uh, verify virtually everything that they've written. 
Oh yeah, I got I got lots of great uh, listeners all around the world, Australia, you know, Great Britain. Um, I just had a guy on last week from over there, uh, part of Daily Plaza UK, and they just had a little conference over there. And I know we were talking earlier, uh, and he had interviewed uh, Malcolm Blunt, who's a who's a British researcher, and he worked with John Armstrong and Harvey and Lee in, in the early stages of, of of the research for the book, and he had uh finally gotten access to one of one uh one of these boxes uh that he previously was denied access to and it contained um a lot of the interviews like hundreds of interviews from people in the marines who supposedly knew Oswald and they right. got they opened the box up and every interview was gone and it was a dusty oh old my box. gosh yeah and it was a you know nobody had been in this box for you. you know, you know this. You know the the same the same thing happened with Richard Case Miguel. Uh, he uh, he let the FBI know that he had a tape recording and a Polaroid fo- photograph of him and Lee Harvey Oswald, which was in a Swiss um, bank vault, and in case he was uh, murdered, uh, would be sent uh, to whoever you know, newspapers, magazines, whatever. Uh, and he he claimed he had copies of it all over the world. Well, on top of that, uh, his son uh, later said that uh, Miguel had a footlocker, a blue footlocker, full of documents. And uh, when his son went uh, to his uh, father's apartment after he died, the footlocker was gone. All of the documents were gone. Hmm. And the same thing happened same thing happened with uh, Guy Bannister, uh, who uh, was a former uh, ONI, CIA, FBI, uh, New Orleans police. Anyway, he was uh, he was uh, in charge of uh, a lot of this uh, stuff that was taking place uh, in uh, New Orleans, and uh, he worked with uh, Harvey Oswald. And uh, the day after uh, he died. Uh, his files were confiscated by uh, some uh, government agency. It wasn't the state police, so it must have been the FBI or the CIA because the state police came in afterwards, and all they found was a card index, and all his files were gone. So th- this, you know, th- this was a, a regular habit of uh, the FBI, you know, of making uh, uh, documents disappear. Yeah, and there's another guy who supposedly had a heart attack in. Uh... You know, there's also reports from I think his, I think his secretary said that he was actually shot. They found blood on the wall, and and uh, of course this happened. Oh, I hadn't read I hadn't read that. Yeah, of course this happened. I, hadn't read I think that. Uh, early in April, maybe well, in April. Well, but well, it, 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 uh, it does it doesn't matter exactly when he was killed. Uh, what what really matters is that uh, he was killed before you could testify to the Warren Commission. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, there were a number of people, uh, uh, I don't want to get into all, all the witness uh, deaths because I don't get into that very much, but, uh, you know, all the witness deaths uh, spiked uh, during the time of the Warren Commission and during the time of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, Garrison's trial in uh, New Orleans and uh, then uh, later with the uh, uh, House Committee on Assassination. 
And uh, a lot of these people died of supposedly, you know, of uh, heart attacks. But a lot of them, you, you, you don't even know how they died. We don't. We no one knows how David Ferry died. No one knows how Clay Shaw died. Uh, uh, Garrison said uh, uh, apparently uh, Ferry uh, was given some pills uh, which did something to his uh, uh, blood vessels and burst his blood vessels in his brain, and he died. Uh, from a stroke like that. But anyway, you know, there's any number of witnesses that uh, are very questionable. Uh, George de Morinfield's uh, death, very questionable. Uh, again, he was, uh, uh, he supposedly committed suicide uh, the same day uh, as he was contacted by the House uh, American uh, Assassination uh, Committee and the same day that uh, uh, a, a, a researcher uh, was uh, planning to meet him. So, I mean, uh, this goes on and on and on and on, uh, ad infinitum. Yeah, I think there was a, re- uh, a recording you know, was made and made of, uh, she was recording her soap opera or something, and there was a, you know, you could hear the gunshots, but there was also like a doorbell that that, hit, that it went off like a couple minutes before the shots, like it's somebody else coming in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I ran across uh, one uh, mention on uh, the uh, internet of uh, somebody saying, you know, well, they found a shotgun, but, uh, you know, his head wasn't blown off. And this uh, one person claimed uh, he, he could see a bullet hole uh, in his head. That wasn't a shotgun. And uh, the uh, sheriff uh, who investigated uh, uh, George's death said it was very strange. And that's all he said. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely was that. You know, you know. uh, Also, uh, one little thing which uh, caught my attention, and it's uh, very provocative, and uh, I'm not sure a whole lot of people know it. And uh, uh, that's uh, uh, Marina Oswald was quote uh, interviewed unquote something like forty six times in uh, the seventy one days. uh, between the time of uh, the assassination and her testimony. And uh, she went in there, and uh, as anybody who's done any research knows, uh, she contradicted everything she said originally. Uh, she made a, a uh, she gave an affidavit to the FBI saying she'd never seen a, a rifle, never seen a pistol, never seen any uh, uh, bullets, never seen him go out to practice. And when she walked into the uh, Warren Commission, uh, she said exactly the opposite. And uh, five days after she testified uh, uh, to the uh, Warren Commission, and she testified that they lived on Neely Street on top of that. But anyway, five days after she testified uh, for the the Warren Commission, uh, she received the contract with a supposed film company uh, from Hollywood for $132,350. That's a lot of money back then. And uh, that's the equivalent of a million dollars today. That's the equivalent of a million dollars today. And so this was five days after she testified uh, to uh, the uh, Warren Commission, and virtually everything she said to the Warren Commission was a lie. So, uh, But I just wanted to mention that $132,000 because that's... uh, that's a pretty pro- provocative, uh, you know, statement. And not not only that, but uh, 
uh, a few a uh, week or two afterwards, the supposed company disappeared after being uh, told they were on a Goldwyn lot, Samuel Goldwyn lot, and they didn't pay their rent. And so they were tossed out hmm. and they disappeared and uh, apparently gave phony, there were three men and they apparently gave phony names. So apparently those are three, IA, three CIA agents. So that whole thing just, you know, smells to high heaven. Yeah, well, I mean, the lady that wrote her her autobiography there was Priscilla Johnson was a CIA agent too. Oh, I don't, I don't believe a word of what the Priscilla Johnson wrote. You know, I I read that, I, I skimmed it, and uh, there wasn't a fact in there that I could use. Not not a single fact. I don't I don't believe a word of that book. No, I think it was pure propaganda at that point. Well, you know, stop and think about it. You know, uh, uh, Marina was in the clutches of the CIA, and so she was going to say or do whatever they wanted to. You know, stop and think about it. And I mentioned this in the book. This is a 22-year-old young Russian woman who has a two-year-old child and just recently gave birth to the second child. Her husband is accused of murdering the president and a police officer. She's got $170 to her name. She doesn't speak English. Um, she has no job. And that's it. She was terrified she'd either be uh, uh, put in prison here or sent back to Russia. So you know, I, I said in the book, you know, if, it, if this was you, what would you do? I mean, you do what they tell you to do. And that's what she did. She did what the FBI told her to do and what the Warren Commission told her to do, e even when some of the things she said were absolute nonsense and completely uh, contradicted what she had uh, said uh, previously. So, you know, I 90% of what uh, Marina said, I think, you know, is just made up. It just doesn't exist. Yeah, I always that's thought a shame, it, you know, that Yeah, I always thought it odd, you know, that okay, you got this American defector, former marine going to Russia. And, you know, Marina yeah. supposedly happens to meet three American defectors, has relations with two of them. And ends up marrying one right. within a couple of weeks of meeting him. Right. You know, it just makes me wonder if there's right. not a little something more to Marina than than meets the eye too. You know. I I think it's uh, it's probable, but you know, you you have to separate out uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, Lee Oswald, and Harvey Oswald, and all that stuff up to the point that he came back. You know, so from the time. Uh, these two guys uh, were merged by the CIA in terms of identity and in terms of everything that took place up to, uh, when did he come back? I think it was June, June of 1962. Up to uh, June of 1962, that was a legitimate intelligence operation which had been planned by the Office of Naval Intelligence and was run by the CIA, uh, by James uh, Jesus Angleton, uh, and this was a legitimate uh, intelligence operation up to that point. Now, starting starting in when uh, Lee when when Harvey Oswald went to New Orleans, that's when he got co-opted by the plotters. Up to that point, it was all legitimate. You know, it was all legitimate uh, CIA intelligence. Office of Naval Intelligence, it was a legitimate uh, intelligence operation. Whatever it was for, apparently it wasn't very successful because 
they uh, the Russians sent uh, Harvey to Minsk, and so and they, he was watched by everybody who you know he worked with or knew with or dated or whatever. So he didn't get a whole lot of information, and uh, uh, I believe I read somewhere that uh, the CIA wasn't particularly happy about that, and uh, they suspected he might have been a, a double agent. And that was another reason they were willing to sacrifice uh, Harvey, because they didn't know if he was a double agent or not, so they didn't care about him. But up to that point of uh, Harvey coming back in June, I think it was a legitimate uh, intelligence operation. And then from that point on, uh, the the uh, uh, people setting up this uh, assassination, uh, uh, David Atlee Phillips, probably James Jesus Angleton, and, and uh, a couple of the other high-ranking uh, CIA people. That's when that went into high gear. Was in the summer of '62, uh, and uh, uh, I'm sorry, it was in April, April of '63 when when uh, he was sent to uh, New Orleans. Right, right after the uh, General Walker shooting, allegedly. Yeah. You yeah. know, you know, uh, it's it, it, it's funny because uh, General Walker, uh, you know, was a right wing guy, and I think a little bit crazy. But uh, even he said that uh, uh, Oswald did not shoot him. Uh, he saw the bullet. He was dug out of the wall by the police when they came there, and when he saw the bullet that the uh, Warren Commission. Uh, claimed that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald had shot. He said that was not the bullet. So even even Walker said, you know, there was something fishy about that uh, shooting. Yeah. Now, now after Oswald was arrested, of course, there was there was an odd uh, exchange between him and his brother Robert, and while he was in jail, and and Robert ended up saying something to the effect of, you know, I I don't know who that person is. Which is a very odd comment to make. I mean, I guess you could say he was making it, you know, metaphorically. But uh. well, you know, uh, the when uh, Harvey came back in the uh, he lived with uh, Robert for three weeks. Uh, then he lived with his uh, bogus mother for a month, and then he got his own apartment. And in on. I think it was November 22nd, 1962. Uh, they had this so-called family get together, and John Pick, the oldest brother, came down to uh, Fort Worth, and uh, the three brothers and their wives and children had this get together. And uh, the bogus Margaret was not invited, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, <clears throat> I think uh, that the reason she wasn't invited was because uh, John Pick didn't know about her. And if they had invited her, John Pick would have known that uh, she wasn't his real mother. Now, Robert <clears throat> Robert lived with uh, the phony Margaret and with Harvey for a year before he uh, went into uh, the Marines. So he knew what was going on even when he was a teenager. But anyway, they had this get-together uh, on November 22nd, 1962, and uh, John testified at the Warren Commission that he was shocked by what uh, his brother, quote, Lee, unquote, uh, looked like. He said he was thinner, he had less hair, his face was rounder, his eyes were set more in, he did not have a bull neck, and so on. And uh, when uh, John asked for uh, Harvey's uh, 
current address, uh, Harvey put his address in there and he put down his name as Harvey. And he never called himself Harvey with his brothers. And his brother did not comment on that. So, you know, John Pick knew something. Uh, he may not have known everything that was going on, but uh, uh, he certainly had to uh, know uh, know something. And uh, Robert Oswald, Oswald clearly uh, knew something, uh, probably starting from a time when uh, uh, he went into the Marines, which I think was a couple of years before uh, Lee went into the Marines. So, <clears throat> you know, I pointed out in one chapter that was this whole nest of spies and uh, enablers in New Orleans. You had uh, Carlos Marcello, a mob boss there, uh, Lee's uncle, uh, Dutz Mouret, who was a bookie who worked with Carlos Marcello, uh, uh, Lillian Moret, who worked for the CIA, and then uh, Robert uh, went into, into the Marines, and I'm pretty sure he got uh, recruited by the Office of Naval Intelligence. And uh, John Pick is uh, connected with the uh, uh, Coast Guard intelligence. Uh, then uh, Lee Oswald, he's in the Marines. He's uh, recruited by the Office of Naval Intelligence and is run by the CIA. Uh, and then uh, they're all, uh, they all are connected to David Ferry and uh, Jack Ruby. I mean, it's just, you know, somebody wrote an article once called The Spider's Web. And that's really what this, this whole operation was. It's like a spider's web, except there was a whole lot of spiders, not just one. Yeah, and I think John Armstrong managed to track down John Pike and I don't, or John Pick, and I don't think he, uh, I don't think he wanted to talk very much. Oh no, no. Well, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't uh, think he was involved in the assassination or knew about the assassination, but he, he had to have known something. Uh, about the, uh, the 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 two two Lee Harvey Oswald, I, I think the entire uh, uh, Oswald family knew about the two different uh, Oswalds, uh, including uh, Lillian and Dutz Moret, uh, Lee's uh, uncle and uh, uh, Marilyn Moret, uh, their daughter. Uh, they they knew about the doubles, but uh, you know, as I pointed out in the book, uh, if they would have said anything, they'd be dead. You know they would have been they would have been killed by either the mob or uh, by the CIA, so they, they kept their mouth shut. Except they made a couple of slips when they were uh, testifying. Uh, but outside of that, uh, 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 Dutz uh, said that uh, Lee Oswald was really a loud kid, and uh, everybody else, including Marilyn uh, uh, Moret, uh, said that uh, Lee Oswald was a very quiet kid. So uh, right there you see, you know, two different uh, uh, aspects. Uh, another uh, was a, a friend uh, of uh, uh, Margaret uh, Oswald. Uh, I forget his name now. But anyway, uh, he was the husband of a very close friend of Margaret, and he testified for the uh, Warren Commission. And uh, both he and his wife said that uh, Lee was very loud and he called him a psycho and said nobody liked him. And that does not fit the description of uh, Harvey Oswald uh, whatsoever. So, you know, as you go through these various things, there was another one. It was in uh, Jim Marr's book. Uh, I don't know if I can quote it exactly. But uh, he talked to some people uh, who knew, quote, Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans. 
in uh, 1963, and they said he was a uh, hard-drinking, swearing, uh, dirty person. And, you know, that's not Harvey. Harvey did not drink. He was not dirty. In fact, he was, people commented on the fact he was always very neat uh, and uh, so on. So, yeah, never. This is where where you get all these. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, no reports of him ever having a beard or, you know, never not clean shaven or dirty. Yeah, it was, he was very. He was very neat, uh, uh, especially you know when he'd go for a job interview. Uh, he'd uh, dress very neatly and wear a tie and uh, you know a clean shirt and uh, so on and so forth. I mean, it's just uh, this is why you know what if you don't if you don't if you don't know or if you don't realize that there were two different uh, Lee Harvey Oswalds, uh, you get absolutely confused and you don't you know say you know what is this and uh, so. And it's just, it's not just the instances, you know, you know. It's the it's the paper trail. It's the photo photographs. It's it's all this stuff combined together that that, that paints a, a bigger picture. Once you connect the dots. Yeah, and and as and, and and as I said earlier, but what you have to do is, you know, this is not one puzzle. There was one book, uh, uh, I think it was called The Second Plot, uh, written by a English guy. And uh, he's uh, also uh, helped me uh, get uh, going on sorting this stuff out. And he said there were two plots. And he said the first plot was the killing of uh, John Kennedy, and the second plot was uh, framing uh, Harvey Oswald. And uh, but you know, as I said, uh, there were more than two plots. So there were about uh, four or five different plots. Yeah. Uh, most of them having to do with with uh, Har- uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, or supposedly who, whoever he was. And uh, so, you know, when you're, it's bad enough to try to uh, sort out two plots without uh, having three, four, and five, and uh, six different plots that uh, make absolutely no sense. And, uh, you know, one one other thing which I haven't mentioned, and uh, which there wasn't a lot of evidence, but uh, there was more than enough enough evidence, uh, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, that is that uh, the uh, substitution uh, uh, of Lee Harvey, uh, of uh, Lee Oswald by Harvey Oswald, uh, took place uh, either at the end of 1958 or at the beginning of 1959. I believe John Armstrong uh, wrote that in his book, but uh, it was very obvious to me uh, when I, I looked at it that that was uh, the probable date. And then uh, later down the line, uh, in 1963, uh, these uh, women who uh, saw Lee Oswald said they. They had lunch with him uh, in the area, and he spoke fluent Spanish. And I thought, well, how, how, does, he, how, how does he get from being a 10th grade dropout uh, in the Marines and all of a sudden speaking uh, fluent Spanish? And it finally dawned on me that when he dropped, uh, when he dropped out of sight and Harvey took his place, uh, Lee went to the Monterey Language School, and he was taught Spanish there. And he learned fluent Spanish at the Monterey uh, language school, and then he went to uh, New Orleans and was working for the CIA on anti-Castro projects, uh, beginning in New Orleans, and then he went to Florida, and then he helped to train people uh, to be soldiers in uh, the uh, Everglades. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, uh, Lee was spotted uh, in Havana uh, before the revolution. 
with uh, Ruby a couple of times at a, a nightclub and uh, ran across a reference where the, uh, uh, he was known to have been in uh, Cuba at least three times and was interviewed three times by the FBI, which the FBI, of course, uh, uh, denied uh, after the assassination. And But anyway, the, the point is that uh, from the time that uh, Lee Oswald uh, disappeared from the scene, he was working as a CIA uh, contract field agent on uh, projects having to do with uh, overthrowing Castro. And that was his work uh, up to the time of the assassination. And what happened was they had trained all these people. There was a group called uh, Operation 40, where they trained first 40 and then 70 people uh, to uh, do uh, covert work, including assassinations. And Lee Oswald was the, one of those people, uh, which uh, Loretta, Loretta, no. Morita. I can't remember her uh, name. Morita Lorenz? Yep. Yeah, something like that. Uh, she, she, she was one of the trainees, and she knew him as Ozzy, and she said he was a creep. And uh, so anyway, he was working in this whole area of anti-Castro activities, and that somewhere along the line, I don't know exactly when, but somewhere along the line, probably uh, at the beginning of 1963, this entire operation, Operation 40, was taken over by the CIA uh, people who planned the operation, and they turned what was intended to be an assassination squad to kill Castro, they turned the same people into uh, killing Ke Kennedy. And that's how the whole thing came about. Right now, of course, we know what happened to Harvey in Dallas. Um, did you run across any information at all about what could have happened to the original Lee Harvey Oswald? There, there, there's a book, I can't remember the name of it, I didn't uh, list it in there, but there's a book that somebody wrote that uh, they saw a man who looked like Lee Harvey Oswald get on a, I don't know what, what it is, some, uh, some Air Force place, see something, I can't remember the number, C-54 or something like that, I can't remember the exact number. Uh, and they wrote an entire book about it, that he was picked, picked up uh, in uh, Dallas and flown Oh, I think it was somewhere in Colorado. I'm not sure now, but anyway, there's an entire book on this. And so he was he he was flown out of uh, apparently he was flown out of Dallas and was never seen again. Now the next thing that the only other thing that I ever ran across was in 1981, uh, some English guy you probably know his name uh, had uh, uh, the uh, burial vault of Lee Harvey Oswald excavated. Yeah, Mike Wynn. Uh, uh, Marina's, yeah, with uh, Marina's uh, consent. Mm -hmm. And uh, this this is extremely provocative, and I don't care what the rest of the stuff has to say about it, but this is very provocative, okay? Lee was buried in a hermetically sealed coffin, which was put in a 2,700-pound concrete steel-reinforced vault which on the inside was covered with asphalt it was guaranteed not to break leak crack or have anything happen to it okay so with something that you know that big and that strong i would certainly hope that nothing would happen to it well when they when they went and 
disinterred this uh, burial, they found the bottom of the um, vault, the steel reinforced vault, concrete steel reinforced vault is broken. Hmm. Okay. Right. And and then when they look at the and when they look at the uh, coffin, there is a piece of the coffin missing above the head. <laughs> now you know that's not possible. You know, it's not possible for that to have happened. That thing had to have been taken out of the ground by somebody at a later time. And why would they take it out of the uh, ground at a later time? And the only thing I could come uh, uh, come to a conclusion to, uh, there were two things. Uh, the original uh, morticians were there for the disinternment, and they saw that the skull of the... Uh, skeleton who was in the the coffin because the body had disintegrated because of uh, the holes. Uh, Water and air had gotten in there and disintegrated the the body. However, the top of the head, when the autopsy was performed, there was a craniotomy, which means they cut off the top of the skull uh, to take out the brain and examine it. And this skeleton did not have a craniotomy, number one. Number two, the skull had a mastoidectomy uh, hole behind the left ear. Apparently, you have to cut a, cut a hole uh, to do this operation. And this hole was there. Well, Harvey did not have a mastoidectomy operation hole when he was uh, autopsied. Okay? Right. So that's a different skull. Supposedly, now, they got hold yeah. of... They got got hold of the Marine Corps dental records of Lee Harvey Oswald, but that doesn't mean anything because there were two Lee Harvey Oswalds in the Marines. So I believe that uh, Lee was uh, killed uh, probably in 1964 and that then his vault was disinterred and his head was placed on top of Harvey's uh, skeleton. I think that's what happened. Right. I now. can't prove it, but you know, that's that's that that's what the 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 facts seem to indicate. Did you ever? And, did you, you ever? Know, they, they couldn't afford to have it. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I mean, that uh, they, they couldn't allow him to stay alive. I mean, it's impossible. You know, uh, he, he was a drinker. And if he got drunk one night and said something, you know, about the assassination, that would blow the whole cover. They, they couldn't afford to leave Lee alive. Right. I mean, did, did you did you ever run across the the uh, the this, the Donald Norton story? I don't think so. No. Um, May Russell, of course, you know, famous uh, researcher, had a radio show and all that. Her right. And, yeah, her and John Judge, I think, and uh, William Kelly in the early, early 70s were speaking at uh, some some university in Ohio. And somebody came up to her after her speech and introduced himself. And he's like, May, don't you know who I am? And uh, she said, this guy was a, a, you know, looked like Lee Harvey Oswald. 
and he had been sending her money uh, or d donations or something, and that they went and, and had some coffee, and then uh, the guy just kind of disappeared. And there have been various researchers over the years to try and track down this Donald Norton, but I don't know if they've ever found the right guy or not. But just an interesting little story, you know, that made me think that maybe, you know, maybe he could have made it, you know, a little a little longer. But, of course, he still could have been killed before the exhumation and, uh, you know, had his head. Yeah, I mean, I mean there, there's 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 no there's no evidence of any kind. There are no there are no stories, you know. Uh, nothing, even you know, word of mouth or anything about. Uh, uh, whereas up to up to that point, there is just you know all kinds of stuff by people coming out of the woodwork saying, "I knew uh, Lee Harvey Oswald." Well, of course, it was uh, uh, Lee Oswald that they knew, and uh, uh, so and then you know, as of November 22nd, the, those stories completely uh, stop. So. I, you know, I, I, I can't imagine uh, them keeping him uh, on or giving him a pension or uh, sending him abroad somewhere or anything like that, you know. Yeah, I know. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. You know, if, if they were willing to kill all kinds of witnesses who were basically, you know, knew only maybe one fact. Uh, uh, certainly, they, they would want to uh, kill Lee Oswald, but you know, there's no evidence. Yeah, well, this is fascinating stuff, George. And everybody can check your book out. What, is the best place to send them to Amazon? Yeah, Am Amazon's the only place that it's on right now. It's, it's available either in paper or as an ebook. And uh, I wrote this book as a readable book okay this is not a research book and uh i i have uh, lots of uh, references in the back you know i have all my sources in the back but it was not written as a research work i wanted it to be a story i wanted a person who is not you know a researcher themselves but the general public to who wants to read a story well who was this guy lee harvey oswald and what did he do and so on and i wanted to tell it uh, as much as a story as possible, and uh, so it is a narrative, and it's not written like uh, research. So yeah, I was going to say it's, you it's know, almost there's a lot from, of stuff in there. written from a first-person perspective of Harvey, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 that, that was kind of odd, you know, because uh, that came about because um, when I started doing the research on it, I started taking notes. After a while, I said, I'm never going to be able to put these notes together. I've got to go and string it together now and then just add stuff as I find it on my computer. And uh, then I was thinking, well, you know, I wonder if this would make it a play or maybe a movie because I write plays and, uh, and screenplays. And I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write this as a monologue and then I'll determine if, you know, there's any possibility of this being a movie or a play. And so I started writing it in the first person and that's how it came about that I wrote it in the first person. But I really, I really like it and uh, a lot of my readers like it uh, because uh, I'm able to look at it uh, from a personal point of view rather than, uh, quote, a researcher. Uh, in the third uh, third person, it, it becomes very. I've done research. I got a PhD, and I know how you're supposed to do it. Uh, but I didn't want to do it that way. I wanted it as a narrative, and um, based on uh, the uh, responses of uh, people who've read the book on Amazon, uh, they all like it written the way it is. So I'm happy I did it that way. 
Yeah, no doubt. Do you have a, a website where people can check out um, more stuff that you've done? Uh, my website is www.georgeswimmer.com. Well, that's easy enough. <laughs> right ho. <laughs> well, George, I can't thank you enough. But I, 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 uh, before you, uh, you sign off, I just want to say, uh, although it's my book, <laughs> I recommend it highly uh, for one reason that this 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 focused only on Lee Harvey Oswald. I did not try to focus on John Kennedy and the autopsy and the bullets and the rifles, et cetera, et cetera. All that technical stuff has been uh, covered by uh, people far more knowledgeable than I am, and I didn't really have any interest in that. My interest was in the man, Lee Harvey Oswald, and as I got into this research and writing I felt he had been done a great injustice. He had uh, not only been murdered, but his uh, reputation was destroyed for all time until, you know, some people decided, you know, this this is a this is not fair. And part of the reason I, I wrote it was because I feel it was unfair, and uh, that he was innocent. He had nothing to do with John Kennedy's murder. He had nothing to do with J.D. Tippett's murder. And uh, so, if you want to find out something about uh, the truth uh, in your history, and uh, uh, I want to add one other, one other thing, if I may. Sure, sure. You know, people people ignore the spiritual aspect of this. I'm not a very religious person, but I'm a pretty spiritual person, and I've done an awful lot of studies, you know, about how spiritual things work, and they do work, and there are things going on that you don't know about, and one of these things that people don't understand is that when John Kennedy was killed, it wasn't just the murder of a single man or a single president. They virtually crippled the entire United States and for a period of time, the entire world with the, with the murder of John Kennedy. And so this is uh, this is not just uh, you know a simple murder, uh, who done it or what have you, because everything that has come from the, up to the point when John Kennedy was killed, the world was heading toward peace. John Kennedy was doing everything he could to create peace around the world, make peace with the Russians, and cut back on this craziness of war. Uh, he, uh, as you probably know, uh, had an executive order issued a month before he was killed, starting to pull back the troops in Vietnam. If John Kennedy had not been killed, there would have been no Vietnam. And I feel pretty sure there would not have been uh, any Iraq or uh, Afghanistan. But it, this was a spiritual thing, and what they did was they destroyed or tried to destroy and badly damaged the spiritual underpinnings of the United States, and I would not be surprised if the distrust of American government didn't start at that point, when people started realizing, hey, my government is not benign. They went and murdered my president. They murdered an innocent man, two innocent men. And so this is a, you know, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Hamlet. And in Hamlet, uh, one person says, 
there's something rotten in Denmark. And at the time Hamlet was written in the uh, medieval times, the concept was that God was up above there, and right below God was the king, who was the agent of God, and then below him were the other agents, and then it went down to the population. Well, if you kill or you poison the head that is right under God, then everything underneath it becomes rotten. And that's exactly what happened when John Kennedy was killed. Uh, on the, uh, one moment, we have this bright, intelligent, uh, peace-loving person, and the next second, we have this, I don't want to characterize it because I don't want to be sued by the Johnson uh, uh, family, uh, but we have Lyndon Johnson, who everybody knows about, and uh, all all the rotten people that were associated with uh, Lyndon Johnson, and we've had that ever since. And until we get the truth from the federal government, uh, we're going to be in this spiritual morass because we are still in this spiritual morass. Yeah, and they are still covering their ass on this one because we both know that. Yes, you know, they are. You know, you can't, you can't, uh, or these big corporations can't make money from peace. You know, and and, and our government can't justify this exorbitant spending uh, for peace either. So, you know. And like I said, they still have something to cover up, which is why we don't have the the entire truth yet. And maybe next year we'll we'll get some more files, but I don't expect a smoking gun or anything of that nature. Um, so I guess we'll just have to wait. I think I think I think it may take another fifty years, or it may even take another hundred years before we're going to find those files. I was in the army in the 1953 or 55. <clears throat> And my last assignment was working uh, in the uh, military library at Fort Benning, Georgia, which is the headquarters of the United States Army. And uh, the first week I was there, I was being trained and indoctrinated by the sergeant in charge of the library. And one day he says to me, do you want to see a secret document? I'd been cleared for secret by then. He says, you want to see a secret document? And I said, yeah, sure. And so he takes me, they had this a little wire cage where they kept the secret documents on shelves. And he unlocks the wire door and opens it, and we walk in there, and he walks over to this uh, shelf and pulls a document off the shelf and hands it to me, and he says, open it. And I open it. And you know what it was? Marked secret? What's that? A document from the Civil War. A document from the Civil War that's still classified secret. Wow! So good luck on finding the good luck on finding the secret documents. Yeah, no doubt. You know? Yeah. Wow. Well, I don't. I don't. I don't think that. The, I don't think that we'll ever get the information out of the CIA. We may get information out of other agencies that uh, aren't as quote secret. Uh, you know, maybe Army Intelligence or the Pentagon or the IRS, or I, I think the INS has information on Harvey. I'm pretty sure the INS has information on him, which uh, nobody has ever even thought about because they haven't thought that uh, he was an immigrant. But he's an immigrant, and so the INS uh, must have some information on him. Right. So anyway, that's the story. Well, fascinating stuff, George. You hang on the line for me, and thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your book. Um, for those interested, like I said, it's on Kindle. You can head to georgeswimmer.com to check out more from George. And I'll put up links 
uh, to his website and also an Amazon link where you can get his book over on TLGpodcast.com with the post for this show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Some bitches in the can beamed up to the satellite down directly to your ears, people. Peace. right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. There are 7 billion humans on Earth. And with that many people, one thing's for sure. They can't all like the same drink. That's why Circle K has Polar Pop and Froster. With a wide range of colas, fruit flavors, teas, energy drinks, and even sports drinks, the flavor combination possibilities are nearly infinite. Come in, pick your flavors, and make that one in 7 billion mix just right for you. Polar Pop and Froster, starting at 99 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations.